Now, I thought I was doing you a solid by bringing these magazines for you and then I've plonked them down and said I've got something really good to tell you about. And you're like, oh, I know that. I've written for that. <laughs> I love to be smug around you. Um, okay, so it's a magazine called Galar and it's edited by a woman called Annabelle Hickson. That's right. And so I was... I only put- work with Annabelle's. <laughs> I was put onto this by my friend Lisa Miller, who she was involved with a conference which was for reg- about regional journalism, yep. and Annabelle Hickson spoke at it. And Lisa like rang me straight away and said, "I've just been at this conference and I've seen this woman speak, and she was absolutely unbelievable. And she's producing this magazine that she's editing, and it looks." Incredible! It's this really high-end kind of glossy production and it's targeted to women in regional Australia. Anyway, she's kept going on and on and on and on about it. Finally, um, Annabelle, she's prevailed upon Annabelle to send me a couple of copies of it so I can have a look at it. And it is absolutely fantastic. Lisa, as I'm just um, verbaling Lisa here basically, but when Lisa was talking to me about it, she said to me, it's pretty much aimed at saying, hey, we women in the country are about more than just droughts and floods and all of the kind of cliches. And lamingtons. And lamingtons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all of the cliches that you kind of hear. So it's this really beautiful, uh, I mean, it's got beautiful photography and there's stuff in it that I'm interested in, like, you know, amazing home you know, interior kind of stuff, beautifully designed rooms and so on. But then there's also quite, like, look at that room. <laughs> there's also um, excellent kind of hard-edged journalism in it. Like the one that I was reading, oh, look at that wallpaper. Mm. Oh, sorry for anyone listening, all the visual references I'm doing. I've just moved house and I'm I'm thinking about really overusing wallpaper a lot. I'm about, I've warned my family, I'm like, there's going to be busy wallpaper in this house. Stand by. Stand by. Fire oh, in the hole. I'm a fan of busy wallpaper, as you know. I know. Um, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting in one of them was a good piece of news reporting about the Murray-Darling Basin. And so they've gone to Richard Beasley SC, who was Senior Counsel assisting the Murray-Darling Basin mm. Royal Commission, which the South Australian government set up in 2018 yep. to have a look at the federal plan to save the Murray-Darling Basin. Basin, And so they've gone back to him and he's written a first-person thing about his anger at, you know, how oh. all this investigation was done yep. and very little, um, in his view, has been done since to address the issues. And then Andrew Reynolds, who's the Murray-Darling Basin Authority acting CEO has written a right of reply. Like it's proper newsworthy stuff that you wouldn't see on most mainstream networks. Like, I mean, we do do a bit on the Murray Darling Basin mm. at the ABC, but it's obviously something that's of vital interest to a whole heap of people. And anyway, I just reckon she's done a bloody fantastic job of this magazine. It's a beautiful looking mag. It is. So I've brought you a couple to mm. uh, have a look at. And then Thank people you. that I like, like um, Belinda Jeffrey, who's, you know, yep. Bakes and Bakes, my favourite book. So look, she's got this whole section in there with recipes, with all the same illustrations from her latest book, which is, I think, called A Month of Sundays. Is there anything more interesting than listening to a woman leaf through a magazine <laughs> for a podcast pointing out visual uh, elements? But anyway, <laughs> I, now I feel I feel bad because Lisa was on at me and on at me and on at me going, you've got to read this magazine. It's absolutely and fantastic. Called, did I say it's called Galar? Maybe uh, I didn't yes. say it's called Galar. Yeah. Um, oh, look at that. 
Mm. Beautiful, so I know. A bit, more, um, bit of a salon hang of paintings. I, don't, I guess if you look for it online, I don't actually know. I guess you subscribe to it and get it sent to you. But I guess you do. It's yeah. sort of like it's beautiful. If you liked country living and yeah, Vogue and house and garden, and it's a bit glossy like that. Yeah, I did a thing on the artist Anna Freeman. Um, oh for yeah, because she's a country raised lady. She's the lady who made my um, beautiful porcelain soaps, and that was um, my interactions with the magazine were thoroughly pleasant. Very good. Actually, yeah. I think that might even be in one of those issues because like, that rings a vague bell. Yeah, you would have flicked past that. Oh, yeah, I did flip past it. Yeah. No, I noticed it. <laughs> I can get that at home. Um, <laughs> someone sent me an invitation the other day to come and see you speak at a breakfast. And I was like, uh, <laughs> no, thanks. thank you. <laughs> I shall be sleeping in that no, day. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, love. Now, what else have we been? I have been watching a spy series on television. Oh, oh. We, we seem to have switched identities somewhere along the path. Right? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, you're reading regional magazines and, and enjoying content about the Murray-Darling Basin <laughs> plan. <laughs> Next and thing I'll be pulling a bit of kohlrabi out of my handbag. Right. Well, this is a series um, based on a series of novels, the author's of, of which name escapes me. The series is called Slow Horses and it is – the premise is fantastic – Slow Horses is the nickname for Slough House, which is where failed MI5 officers go in disgrace, right? So it's this kind of manky old building where drunk, dysfunctional or disgraced spies go to serve their time and they're all completely cross about being (laughs) sidelined, right? And the lead Slow Horse is Gary Oldman. Oh, Gary Oldman's so good. Right? Yeah. And the head of proper MI5 is, or the division head, is Kristen Scott Thomas. Oh. So she's like, get out, Gary Oldman, and stay there, right? Yeah. And the series, it's amazingly, I mean, a lot of money has gone to this production, i.e. they've got Gary Oldman. They've got Kristen, Kristen Scott Thomas. The action scenes are incredible. Like it starts with one of these spies in his act of failure, which is where he is the person who's tailing this bomb terror suspect um, through Heathrow and it's all filmed like <laughs> it would have been a very expensive shoot and then he totally cocks it up and that's mm. how he gets sent to Slough House mm. and they're known as the Slow Horses, mm. Slough House. Anyway, what emerges is that these failed spies and and the guy who fucks up the um, Heathrow thing ends up like sorting through the rubbish of somebody that they're supposed to be tailing. So it just every morning starts with him just hauling this filthy Ugh. bin bag full of rubbish that he's got and he doesn't know what he's looking for. Like it's all just, Ugh. you know. But it ends up being this plot about um, right-wing terrorists um, in London and what quickly emerges is that the slow horses spies – are being used by MI5 to be kind of plausible, plausibly deniable, like they are set up on these sub-projects that proper spies can't go anywhere near. So there's a whole kind of complicated set of relationships that you start to find out about that are secret. Mm. Um, yeah. So also the theme song is by Mick Jagger. Oh. Like so they've just – Wow, they've thrown some money at it. Right? So is it – are you, I, I can't tell, like, are you loving it? Interesting. So I 
love watching Gary Oldman. I love watching Chris, Kristen Scott Thomas. Um, I am impressed by the resources. I think the writing lets it down a tiny ah. bit. Like there's just a few bits where you think, mm. what a shame. There's some episodes where you go like, well, what actually happened in this episode? Like there's a lot of, I thought it could have, I mean, this is going to be controversial. I think I was expecting it to be a bit funnier. Yeah, you it feels like it could have a bit of wit. Right, and yeah. there's some, yeah, there are some genuinely funny moments, but it, it feels like it's not really written for laughs in a way that it could be. Anyway, look, I mean, I watched it all the way to the end. I didn't sort oh, of, okay. I, didn't, I, I didn't think, you know, what's going on here. And and partly it just, it's because of the heft, like Sophie Okonedo's in it as well. Oh. Um, she's the director general of MI5. Like, so it's cool. And there's like some great characters, but I think I felt like it was brilliantly produced, but I felt like the writing possibly oh, maybe they didn't leave enough money for the writers after all the rest know. of it. I don't know. Have you seen anyway. Everything Everywhere All at Once yet? No, I haven't. Oh, I really want to know your take on that. If uh, you get a, second. I know. Well, Virginia Gay listened to our last te- thing and she said, "I will come and see that with you." <laughs> so, I mean, any kind of slightly intense film can only be made more intense by sitting next to Virginia Gay. So. Funny you say you watched that through to the end because I've at the moment got a bit of a loss of attention. You know, sometimes we talk about a reading slump. I've got a TV watching slump. I haven't watched anything on TV after I watched the last season of Borgen, which I loved, which oh, yeah, I talked about right. a couple of pods ago. It's hard to follow up Borgen, though, because it's so <sighs> incredibly beautiful and precise. Yeah, it's like it's sitting so well on a non-Danish armchair. Well, like, like, I'm just, I'm also just like, I, I want succession back. <laughs> I want like, that back so badly. You know how so you kind badly. of get to a thing where everything's unsatisfactory because it's not succession. Yeah. Like, that's the headspace. I wouldn't in. mind a bit of an advance on the next series of The Crown as well. Oh, yeah, I'd be very happy to see that too. I'm ready for that. Yeah, I didn't even watch the end of The Dropout. I just lost interest. Yeah. I think I've watched that about three times. I've been watching a fun show that is great and it's called I Love That For You. Yeah. And it's by, I mean, it stars these two women who are big names on Saturday Night Live. Uh So Vanessa Bayer and I'm not a big Saturday Night Live watching no. person and Molly Shannon. Anyway, oh, yeah. the premise is this and it's kind of like it's a pretty provocative premise. Vanessa Boyer plays Bayer plays this like OTT young woman who had leukemia as a kid and was then sort of like slightly coddled by her parents. And when she was a kid in hospital, she watched this shopping tr- channel nonstop, became obsessed with this woman who was a presenter, dreamed of one day becoming a presenter on the shopping channel so the show starts with her doing an audition and she actually gets the gig a trial shift you know at 3 a.m selling stuff and what it becomes then is this sort of like workplace drama about a television shopping channel and it's full of these completely elaborate personalities and it's really good fun and it is well written so you know how something like that could either like just survive or thrive on the quality of the writing and it is good. And she has a disastrous audition and she gets the sack and then she says, because she's a bit of a liar, she says, I have cancer. So she pretends that she still has cancer. (laughs) And sure enough, the attitude of the workplace changes. She gets a nice dressing room. She's not sacked. (laughs) And the channel finds that whenever she mentions her cancer, sales go through the roof. 
Oh. So she has to pretend oh, she has to build God. this whole thing about her cancer. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, it's um, it's heaps of fun. I'm really enjoying it. That's a good premise. Oh, it's. I reckon you know how you're you're obsessed with double lives and you oh, know yeah. rolling catastrophes mm-hmm. and things that go wrong. I reckon a really interesting thing is when somebody tells a lie that then snowballs. I mean, the Elizabeth yeah. um, Holmes thing is yeah. kind of this or that. Um, what was the name? Bell the wellness. Oh, chick. I was going to say Bell Hooks. Different, different Bell. Yeah, Bell I Gibson. Can't Bell Gibson. Yeah. yeah, where you start kind of, you know, with a story, and then it kind of snowballs, and then you sort of it's right. Fascinating. And then it must be horrifying. And if you're a particular personality type, which I think definitely Elizabeth Holmes was, you're so strongly convinced of your own purpose that you allow yourself to cut corners in pursuit of it, and because mm. you feel that your purpose is a holy one, you know that it's a then you allow yourself all of these petty Ugh. kind of crimes of inconsistency and untruth and also taking advantage of other people because you feel like you're blessed by this divine purpose. Well, and was it you and I talking on the pod or was it with somebody else where we're talking about the way memory works and mm. how you can start to convince mm-hmm. yourself that something is actually true if you right. just tell yourself enough times. And yeah. we're talking about that newsreader in the US, Brian. That's right, Brian Williams. Brian Williams. Mm. Did, did we already talk about this on the pod? No, I think we talked about it in IRL. <laughs> Yeah, where he claimed that I landed in Kosovo under sniper fire or something or other. Yeah, it was then, in a helicopter that was that was shot yeah, at, and then it was found like no. <laughs> and he, he told was, that like, story at a bunch of yeah. at dinner parties and like events and stuff. And then eventually, somebody who was like actually there, a member of the armed forces, just actually took him out and just said, "Hey, listen, I know you've told this story a bunch of times, but." You were not in the helicopter that came under fire. I was. I was yeah. in the first helicopter. We got fired at. You didn't. You just were part of this sort of squadron, that, yeah. you know, part of which was fired at. And he was genuinely, genuinely horrified and, you know, and it absolutely knocked a huge hole in his professional reputation. It did. And also and Malcolm Gladwell, as part of his revisionist histories, did a whole episode couple of episodes about memory and talks about the Brian Williams. Oh, I must listen to that because I'm doing a bit of reading about memory at the moment for something I might do. But trauma affects memory as well. So maybe Brian Williams might have been really scared and so he he legitimately did feel like he was fired on. Right. Um, And the more times you tell a story, the more you custom make it, you know. Yeah. And you smooth it over. And yeah. Yeah. You put me onto this show, which the kids and I really love, called Brain Games. Oh, I love Disney that show. Plus. It's yeah. so well done, so clever. It had an episode about memory and they had they showed like literally from almost the second after something's happened how your memory starts to distort kind of straight away. And and it was incredible. So they, they staged this moment where it was someone gets a bag snatch in a park mm. and then there's a group of people there. So they a police officer individually or a retired police officer individually interviews each person about their recollection yeah. of it. And it's astonishing. Like it's even just minutes after how different everyone's yeah. recollection is immediately, let alone when you think cases that go to court. It's often months if not years after mm-hmm. the actual event happened. It's fascinating. Right. It's not just the way people's brains hold memories either. It's the way they form memories. And it's about the things that you notice. Like because you might say, oh, I noticed that it was a red car because it looked like my mum's car. Whereas somebody else wouldn't have noticed that at all. Or, oh, I noticed that the guy who, you know, snatched the bag had these yellow trainers because they look like my son or or whatever. Like the stuff that you actually slot into your memory will vary from person to person. Well, one of the amazing things with brain games too is because they talk about how, you know, you focus on something so you miss other things. Yeah. And so there's episodes where they'll say at the end, like, okay, did did all of you catch the giant rabbit that was repeatedly right. shown throughout the show? And you'll be like, what? 
And then you see... I never see the rabbit. My kids are all like, Mom! Yeah, it's yeah. quite extraordinary. Mm. Well, last night there was a fascinating one. They were talking about the biological differences in the way men's and women's brains work and they showed this spectrum of the colour red yeah. and they said it was kind of split with like a black line between these reds. And the thing was, how many different shades of red can you see here? And I said, nine. And the boys both said, seven. And they said, chances are, if you're watching this as you're a woman, you've seen nine different colours. And they removed the black lines and put the reds all up against each other. And then when they were all butted against each other, everyone could see that there's oh. nine reds. But they were saying women have a biological evolutionary formed thing to see more differences in the shade of red. And it comes from way back when we were hunter-gatherers where knowing and understanding the different shades of red was useful because women were gathering berries and so you wanted to know, like, oh, this one's ripe, this one's not, this one needs to stay on. And so through, you know, biological imperative, we have developed. Wow. It was incredible, yeah. I love that show. I love that show because it's really good to watch with kids because yeah. it's full of, like, they've got, you know, magicians and stuff and they do lots of illusion stuff. Yeah. So, like, look at this, now look at it again. Yeah. And it shows you how your brain fills in gaps yeah. and how it can kind of deceive you. And the kids just are obsessed with it. It's really fun and interesting but it also teaches them I think to be alert to subjectivity and the way different people Definitely. see and experience things in different ways. And also just that sometimes if you don't notice something or if you have a different interpretation to somebody else it's not that there's something wrong with yeah. you it's just that your brain is wired to mm. operate in a certain way and often in ways that are you know for important reasons like talking before about evolutionary biology one of the things that I researched in Any Ordinary Day was how we are programmed to have more fear of things that are, it's called events with a high dread risk. So yeah. they're events that cause, that are either unexpected or cause a lot of mass um, fatalities at once. So mm -hmm. terrorism, gun mm -hmm. massacres, pandemics, mm -hmm. those things are all really scary to us. And it comes from the fact that, you know, back when we were, you know, living in tribes, safety was in numbers. And mm. so things that could kill off a lot of people at once were problematic because it was going to decimate your tribe. So even in the modern era, we're more scared of things. So, for example, there were a lot of people who were and are very, very scared of COVID, but your chance is far more significant that what you're eating and consuming every day is going to kill you before mm. COVID is going to. But what you're eating is something that's called a low dread risk because it causes yep. more deaths, but they're spread over a longer period yep. of time. So it seems less scary. So, for example, in elderly people, falls is a very common mm. cause of death. But we don't see people going around saying, well, we need to have a national, you know, task force on falls. Mm. Um, whereas actually that is, you know, a very common way for people of a certain age to die. Well, I guess we've incorporated that, right? We've, we've accustomed ourselves to, like, that's what happens, right? And even death rates from COVID and death rates from flu, which is something that we've, you know, also incorporated well, flu comes along every couple of years and, you know, knocks over some elderly people. I mean, it's just our assimilation of that risk into yeah. our, our normal expectation of, you know, what can happen to a normal life. Yeah. Um, just, it's just happened more gradually, I suppose. It's been very interesting to watch the evolution of thinking around COVID because in 2020, there was no – if you tried to have a discussion around well, what do we consider to be an acceptable number of death, people were going, none, we can't yeah. have any COVID deaths. Um, and so that was not a conversation, you know, going to the George Orwell thing I read out last podcast, that was not an acceptable conversation mm. to have. Whereas now, I, I don't even know what the actual daily death toll yeah. is from COVID, it's 20 or 30 
if you talk to people who used to not want to talk about um, an acceptable number of death, they'll say, but it's different now because we have vaccines and so we have to go back to living normal life. Well, a death is a death. So mm. that's still 20 people who've died today or whatever it is, but we are now viewing it as different. So there is actually, society has reached a point where it says this is an acceptable number of deaths. Now, not, not everyone would agree with that, of course, and if it's someone that you love, there's no acceptable of level course, of death. Yeah. But it's fascinating how the kind of societal focus has shifted on right. and we've all that. stopped, you know, Talking panic buying it. toilet paper as well. Like yeah. there are these sort of like bubbles of panic or bubbles of behaviour that just sort of yeah. reside, like re- recede, yeah. It's really fascinating. I yeah. just ordered actually off Booktopia. Everybody. I'm sorry, um, Chip Legrand, who's a reporter at The Age, has a book that's come out called Lockdown and it's looking at, he was reporting on that all through the Victorian lockdown, so it's looking at what happened but also the consequences of that now because mm. I think that's also something that you know, journalists should continue looking at because at the time, as I said, questions were not encouraged about that policy and we were told that it is necessary and it is the only option. We were told over and over again there's no other option. And so now if you're following, say, mental health in young people, alcohol-related deaths, cancer-related deaths, you're seeing all of the consequences of that play out. And it's the kind of thing, I think, for anyone who's interested in evidence-based policy and fact that, you know, you need to kind of follow it over time to see where these things end up. And it's important because there could be another pandemic, you know, at some some point in time. So anyway, I'm looking forward to Chip, Roll- Chip um, Legrand was one of the people around who was applying, you know, critical thinking all the time, I thought, to policy. And so I'll be curious to see what his book's like. Well, there's a lot of details still coming out, like exactly. how many jobs certain prime ministers had. You know, at the same time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's been fascinating. Oh, I haven't been following news much while I've been away, but oh, that certainly gone, caught my uh, my eye. I noticed our mates at the Batuta Advocate have got a character now called Side Hustle Scotty. Oh, <laughs> bless their hearts. They're very funny. What was I going to tell you about? Oh, oh no. Um, so. Just on this idea of risk, I have been listening to – there was a whole new series of cautionary tales, that um, podcast that I love from Tim Harford, who's sort of like behavioural economist type oh, person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Harcourt? Ha, ha, no, that's um, – oh, Christ, what is his Tim name? Tim Harcourt, the economist? Uh, no, 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 what is his name? Hang on, let me go. Tim Harford. Harford. Harford, Okay. Tim Harcourt is, of course, an Australian economist. Uh, oh, yeah, Tim English Harford economist. is English, sorry, yep. okay. and my poor brain. It's a great it's, – it's now and it's like third or fourth series, but I love it because every episode goes to some kind of event in history from which something can be learned about human nature and how yeah. we behave. And in this new series – well, it's not that new. I think it's from last year, but I just didn't realise there was a new series, so I've been absolutely snuffling it up because um, I really enjoy it. There's this one episode about – he talks about how safety mechanisms can sometimes encourage you to behave less safely because you have the, you know, assurance of a safety mechanism. So he goes through things like seatbelts and talks about this sort of particular sort of seatbelt that involves a head restraint that they introduced for um, Formula One race car drivers who resisted it at first until somebody died horribly and then they were like, okay, we'll try it out. And what they found was that there was a degree of higher risk-taking behaviour once oh, they thought, well, amazing. I'm totally safe now. And he talks about um, the main episode that he engages with in this podcast is an incident uh, on an Aeroflot plane involving an autopilot, right? And, you know, autopilot is this great invention where you can just stroll off to the loo and the plane will fly itself and so on. Anyway, the incident in question was on this 
Aeroflight and the pilots were all relaxed, perfect day for flying, you know, very uneventful. And one of the pilots lets his kids fly the plane. Like he gives them a shot, you know, taking turns at the controls. And he's like, that's cool because the autopilot's on. And then something goes terribly wrong and <sighs> it's it's not a happy ending, but um, he's pursuing this idea that when you have the relaxing reassurance of this sort of safety procedure. That is fascinating because yeah. that, that kind of fits with what we're talking about too mm. about the changing public discussion around COVID because it's the perception of safety or yeah. the perception of being unsafe that's what's influencing the behaviour. So say the toilet roll panic buying was a yeah. perception of not being safe that was mm-hmm. driving that behaviour. And now with people being vaccinated, that's a perception that they are safer, which may or may not be true. As uh, It's true on generalised statistics, but mm. as an individual, you still may get a bad dose of COVID. Well, I know now that I'm, you know, I'm quadruple vax now and I wander around like, I mean, I, I am not doing the hand sanny every time I you know, step outside or take a breath. I saw her um, go to the toilet before chatters and didn't wash her hands even. I didn't wash my hands even, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, I've got my t- bum on your tracksuit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> can I tell you about didn't something um, just totally down the opposite end of the spectrum to the serious stuff we've been talking about, which is, you know, I read The Palace Papers by Tina Brown. Yeah, That was so great that I then just went on a mad ordering frenzy of Tina Brown oh, books. Oh, Vanity Fair Diaries? Yes. Oh, mm. oh. I could not have loved it more. It was such a pleasure and it was it's such an incredible, you know, the 80s in New York is such a unique and interesting time. And <laughs> I mean she is very very smart, savvy yeah. editor, but she's kind of arrived at this moment and so she's had the foresight to sort of I think one of her great skills is identifying great talent. So she's identified she meets Dominic Dunn at a dinner party and she's like that guy should be writing something right. for us. And so she gets him in. And then Annie Leibovitz, who's been doing a bit of stuff, she basically just gives she Annie just Leibovitz it, carte yeah. blanche. Yeah. It's just she seems to have, like, limitless budget. Yeah. And then Leibovitz just keeps bringing back this absolute gold. And so she's talking about trying to build Vanity Fair from not going very well and on a real slump to making it, you know, kind of very influential in the talk of the town. So she talks through all of that. But, of course, New York in the 80s is like this unique kind of strange place where that's heavily that you know doing a magazine about celebrity and money and power at that time was an absolute golden era to be looking at that oh, kind of stuff. Is there a lot of Trump content going on there? There is some Trump yeah. content, yeah. And then she's having encounters with, you know, oh, just every, you know, celebrity that you could possibly name and some hilarious ones with Warren Beatty and just just everybody who's anyone and go, you know, they go and do a shoot with the Reagans and but it's just fascinating her process of She's a great writer herself. Like yeah. She really holds your attention as she's going. But also her process of the big picture of what makes a good magazine and what an editor needs to do and finding the right people and putting them on the right topics and what's the zeitgeist. Mm. Like she's got a really great skill at that big picture. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is, and you know, just a reminder of every level that you're at at journalism, is um, the constant networking and contact making and hustling. Yeah. And she's one of those people, and I've worked with producers like this, she says, I like to close. Like so, you know, she oh wants gosh. to go and have lunch with somebody and 
in and they're locked in for an interview. And so she can't stand it if, you know, journos are sort of... If it just turns out to be a lunch. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, she's she's a very interesting and compelling character. And then she's having... She has two kids, um, one of whom is diagnosed with Asperger's while she's in that job. And so, you know, it's just really interesting talking about the juggle of her job, which clearly she finds very captivating, but then also her sense of mother guilt. Mm. Uh, It was just... I loved it. Okay, I've actually got that book and I haven't read it. Oh, so, you'll uh, you'll adore sadly, it. Sadly, it's in one of eighty boxes of Ugh. books, but like I will um I will find it. Um, you will adore it. Mm, very good. I was just as you were talking, I was remembering you know that um show that I was talking about that I've been watching called I Love That for You. Yes, the um sitcom essentially about a all night shopping channel. At one point, one of the kind of guys who's one of the presenters or producers or something, he's like begging for a day or two off for the weekend off because he says I just I've been invited to Martha's Vineyard for Graydon Carter's barn opening (laughs) (laughs) it's just like it's so perfect oh that's so good yeah barn opening uh what else have we I know that we're getting to the end of our allotted time aren't we we, sweetie um I went to uh the Australian Chamber Orchestra the other week to see a thing called The Crowd and I it was a bit like okay I heard about this Baraka or Kana Squatsy that kind of thing where it's sort of world pictures with and they were playing live music to it um and it was kind of about well, as the title might suggest, the crowd and I. So there were some images where it was huge seething masses of humanity and then sometimes there'd be someone who'd be in isolation. And Yeah. Yeah, so it was, um, you know, I just really, as you know, I've banged on about them a lot. I just love that they're always doing something new and innovating. They and, really are. Yeah. They are um, ridiculously talented, those people, as we know from our experience with them. <laughs> we do. Yeah. I, um, talking about profound talents, watched the ABC's doco about Jeffrey Smart. Um, oh. So that's made by... By like a very celebrated um, documentary filmmaker, Catherine Hunter. Oh who, yeah, yeah. Used to be the Sunday Arts editor. She's right, amazing. She's, yeah. And she's you know she's done docos on Sydney Nolan and Margaret Ollie and Ben Quilty. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so she apparently just got this call one day years and years and years ago saying, "Would you like to go over and spend some time with Jeffrey Smart in you know in Italy, Italy. which is where he's lived since the '60s?" And so she's sort of like apparently just sort of went, okay. And so what really drives this doco is all these incredible interviews with the man himself who's obviously no longer with us. But And it's a total showreel of really interesting people to hear from. So Clive James um, oh, is great. in it uh, as well, David Maloof. And it's, I don't know, I, I've always really liked Jeffrey Smart's work but I I haven't read all that much about him but he talks about how traveling in Europe you know in the 60s and he said that I um, always preferred the sort of mess and sort of slightly industrial clutter of Italy to the sort of neat prettiness of France and and he was saying like um, because you know how he's obviously well known for painting roads and Mm. signs and things that are right but things that are often considered ugly or industrial Mm. Um, and he said that he it worries him that that fine art records beautiful things, but all the things that are absolutely everywhere in our daily lives, like cars and televisions and roads and signs, mm. get left out of fine art. So yeah. that 
fine art fails to kind of capture a real universal truth about how we live our lives. Yeah, really interesting. right. Anyway, that's interesting. It's um, a great film. I know another artist that we both like, Cressida Campbell. There's a big retrospective Stop. at the National Gallery yeah, later this year. I can't wait to go to that. Yeah, it's going to be sadly on the day that we're in Perth, though. That's when it's opening. But we're yeah, certainly but it's gonna, open for a while. We're going to get there. Yeah, obviously. we've got a Canberra show later this year. Oh yeah, that reminds me. Perth shows. If if you check our website, Perth and Albany, yay, on sale. We are, uh, and then we're having a road trip with our families in WA, which we're looking very forward to. Yeah, um, and very excited about seeing that Albany um, Performing Arts Centre, which is why we're going there because Jeremy saw it and went, oh, my God, it's amazing. <laughs> I uh, haven't broken this news to you yet because me and Jeremy have been doing most of the planning. Oh, but uh, So we've got a Perth show on the Saturday night and then it's – check our website for the details because I can't remember the date – late September. 24th. And then me and you – are hitting the road at like 7am on Sunday morning so that we can make sure that we get to Albany in time. See, I didn't even know this detail. What yeah, do you mean 7am? Right. Because we, I'm real? not game to wait to go with all the kids because I'm just worried like they'll, they'll be like, oh, I need to stop for the toilet. Oh, I need to So the kids driving themselves, are they? What's this? <laughs> no, Jeremy's got them. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy's going to have um, all of them, Great. and so and we're hitting the road. And I think Gwen's coming over and is going to hit the road with us I too. Love the so it's going to be a road trip. This so is ridiculous. Okay. I think on that date, Sunday the twenty fifth, people should keep an eye on our Instagram and what our could fa- possibly Facebook. Go wrong. I think there'll be some good stuff. I've yeah. actually got a pub already squared away for lunch that I'd like to. Oh, and I found this museum, which is um, oh, like go. a uh, what was it? It was it's a, a zipper weird... museum. No, it was something weird. It wasn't tapestry. It was something. Maybe it was. It was something kind of weird. Where embroidery. I was like, oh, that's really no. weird. No, it wasn't embroidery. But anyway, oh there's a God. few good things to see. We so. need to find you a hobby. Right. Okay. Well, haven't we cracked through a lot of material? Yeah. There? And I'll see you in Brisbane next weekend. You Better get some new material will. ready by then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hang on. This will probably. Oh no, yeah, yeah. this will be out before Brisbane. Yeah. No, no, it won't. It won't. Okay. So, so um, if you're listening to this, we've already been to Brisbane. Yeah. Just cut, cut. <laughs> 